The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. Welcome to turning hard times into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Well, we do have a special one-time offer that we tell you about almost every week. You can uh, for, uh, test our, uh, try our subscriptions out, uh, the subs- all three subscriptions. If you like, call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to my website at miningstocks.com. We have low uh, introductory prices for you to try these publications to see if they are of value to you. We do have some free things, too. Of course, jayswatchlist.com provides you with a sense of some of the companies I'm looking at for possible inclusion in my newsletter. Webeatthestreet.com provides you with a a blog that Roger Wiegand is involved with on a regular basis. Also, I'd like to remind you that coming up on September 13th, I will be participating in uh, in a Kitco e-conference event. That will be on September 12th and the 13th. I will be uh, one of the last speakers in this event uh, and providing a PowerPoint discussion of why I think gold is and gold mining shares are the buying opportunity of a lifetime. So go to kitco.com and uh, 
Uh, there will be announcements there on a regular basis, but September 12th and September 13th, uh, I will be uh, there uh, providing my ideas there uh, on the gold markets. Also, some of the other speakers who will be there, uh, we have Ron Paul, James Dines, Rick Rule, Brent Cook, Lawrence Ralston, David and Eric Coffin, Dr. Mark Faber, John Nadler, John Hathaway, uh, Prue Saxena, uh, Joe Martin, Frank Holmes, Mike Berry, and David Martin, uh, David Morgan, I'm sorry. Um, in effect, this is an electronic event that looks very much like the, uh, the shows that I speak at in Vancouver, Toronto, San Francisco, New York. These are shows where uh, you have speakers like myself, newsletter writers, uh, and companies presenting their stories to the investors. So I think it would be well worth your time. You don't have to get on an airplane, spend a lot of money to go there or to uh, book a hotel. You can just do it right from the comfort of your, uh, of your office or your living room and watch this event uh, thanks to modern technology. I would uh, really like to welcome questions from you, the listeners from time to time. About 90% of our listeners really listen to this show um, not live. They listen to it with, download, with downloads on their podcasts, um, on, their iPhone, I, on their iPods and uh, other devices. So, uh, but in any event, you can send emails to us at questions for Taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Uh, or you can call in live, too, and if we have an opportunity, we'll put you on. We'll, we'll uh, let you to ask the question live. I must say that today's show, though, is jam-packed, as most of them are time-wise, so I don't know how much time we'd have today for that, but you're always free to call in to that number, and that number is 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show because you are listening uh, on a regular basis, and more and more of you are listening. We are the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Of course, I want to thank our sponsors, as always, for making this uh, financially viable. And in just a few minutes, we're going to be talking to the chairman, president, and CEO of one of my favorite companies, a silver company, Golden Minerals Company, uh, Golden Minerals, uh, headed by Jeffrey Clevenger. And Jeffrey will be with us in just a few minutes. They have some, some fantastic properties in Mexico, Peru, and Argentina and a very experienced and proven technical team to head up that company. Towards the end of this week's show, I will be talking to Wade Dow. He's the president and CEO of Brigus Gold Corp., another new gold producer in Ontario uh, that I think has the potential to grow into a major gold mining uh, production company in the next number of years. So um, those that's sort of what we have going on today. I think um, I've been saying... Um, you know, that this is the buying opportunity of a lifetime. And it's not just because the price of gold is going up. It's because the real price of gold is going up. But I would ask you the question, what do you think? Why is the price of gold rising the way it is? Well, I would argue that the price of gold is not necessarily rising in, uh, in reality, but that the dollar and other paper currencies are self-destructing. They're self-destructing because huge amounts of money is being created out of nothing. And this leads to malinvestment. That's a concept that the Austrian economists understand. It means that money is put to bad use, and it means that uh, there is not sufficient returns on investment to pay the debt uh, or to provide good returns uh, for the investors. And so we are stuck with this malinvestment problem. Um, and you must have tangible assets, in my view, to, uh, to retain value, to retain your purchasing power as we head into some very, very difficult times. Gold and silver provide the best barter instruments there are. So when the currency system breaks down, you need to have a, a means to, uh, to buy things, to get around and to do things, because 
when nobody will accept the paper currency, and we're not saying that's imminent right now in the United States, uh, let's hope it's not. But in the event it is, you need to have tangible assets that retain their value, whereas paper will uh, revert to its real value, which is next to nothing. Well, in a few minutes now, we're going to be talking to Dmitry Orlov. He's the author of Reinventing Collapse. Uh, he will be my special guest today. Dmitry will tell us that he sees a pattern in the United States taking uh, on a very similar a pattern to that of the Soviet Union, that is our financial markets and our economy and so forth. And, and you know, that may be hard for some of us who have been indoctrinated to believe that our capitalist system is, is far superior to the command economy that the Soviets had, but guess what? The more and more we look at what's going on by our policymakers, we're looking more and more like a command economy. We're getting away from free market capitalism, that is for sure, and it's leading us down the path of destruction, in my view. Well, we'll hear what Mr. Orloff has to say, and the things that occurred in the Soviet Union, the disruptions of, of food supplies and energy and all kinds of things, markets were thrown upside down. The, uh, there wasn't availability of food on the shelves. There wasn't availability of a lot of life's comforts that we've become accustomed to. And so following Mr. Orloff, I'm going to be talking to Suzanne and Lisa of All-in-One Preparedness for some ideas about how you can prepare for the kinds of things that Mr. Orloff is projecting into the future in the United States, or let's hope he's wrong about that. But there are natural disasters that occur all too frequently as well, and it's for those events that Suzanne and Lisa will uh, provide us with some ideas how we can prepare ourselves for uh, the uh, unhappy events that are part of, part of life, let's face it. Well, you do see some... Um, so uh, let me now, before I forget, uh, thank our sponsors for this show. Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Solid and Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Golden Minerals, Clifton Star, Silvercrest Mines, Duncan Park Holdings, and Swiss America. They are the sponsors for the first part of this sh week's show. Now, I, uh, I just want to mention uh, Roger Wiegand uh, will not be with us today. We just didn't have time to crowd him in. I just want to mention that Roger is very bullish on gold right now, uh, and he's also very bullish on FAZ. That's the short on the financials. Uh, it's a triple-down short, and I must say that it is part of my portfolio as well. Uh, Roger is also very bullish on the grains, uh, and he reminds us that September is historically the worst possible month for stocks. And I would like to, if I had the time, go into a lot of the reasons that Dr. Robert McHugh uh, is talking about as well. But we, I believe we're in a very treacherous uh, position and time for stocks in general. Um, before we bring on Mr. Clevenger, I have Chen Lin with me too. Chen, uh, I would like to get what your thoughts are on the stock market right now. What are your thoughts? Hi, Jay. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite uh, concerned about this market. I've been hearing, I heard some rumors, basically, the Wall Street, they hate Obama, Democrats so much, they're going to drive, you know, the stock market down, you know, as hard as they could, so to make sure the Republican will regain the House and Senate after oh. the midterm election. So that, that's what I heard. I talked to a hedge fund friend, and it was told they were shorting pretty heavily. So that's you know, all the manipulation going on. So mm -hmm. we, have, we have people hiding in the fixed income, hiding U.S. government bond uh, right now, which I believe the government, U.S. government bond is the bubble because um, the ability to repay those bonds uh, is uh, getting weaker and weaker every day. So, so, but, so that's getting a very interesting thing right now. So people will sit inside of cash sitting on the sideline collecting zero interest. People, more and more people put into gold. And silver. Uh -huh. Look at the silver. How is there, how is silver doing after J.P. Morgan's, you know, closed its prop desk? Uh, 
silver just going through straight up in the past few weeks. So it's yeah. very encouraging. Now it's today even crossed twenty dollars. Well, I can tell you, Chen, that we had recently um, we uh, next week's guest actually. I'm going to be speaking to Adrian Douglas, uh, who writes for the Gold Antitrust Action Committee. And Adrian provided some, uh, some I think, convincing, very, very convincing evidence of, uh, of policymakers manipulating the uh, gold price down lower. Uh, if, you looked at the, uh, if you looked at the gold price, uh, if you bought gold and the morning fix in London and sold it in the PM fix from the year 2002 through the end of uh, last week, you would have lost $500 an ounce. And this was at a time when the gold price was rising very dramatically. Very subtle manipulation in the prices, and there's five banks that sit on that, on that um, PM fix, AM and PM fix in London, very interesting stuff. So you're you are very very bullish on gold and even more so on silver, I believe. Yes, um, um, in in the silver it looks like it's breaking out. You know, silver company doing extremely well. Silver stock like Alaska is just going through. You know, like I'm almost fifty uh, percent in the past uh, month and a half. Okay, well, very good, Chen. We're going to be talking in just a minute. Uh, we're going to be talking to Jeffrey Clevenger of Golden Minerals, and I hope you can stick with us. Uh, maybe you'll have a question for Jeffrey. That is a company with some outstanding silver properties. And uh, can you stay with us, Chen? Sure. Okay, right. folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with uh, Jeffrey uh, Clevenger of Golden Minerals. This is a very exciting uh, silver mining company evolving in, into and towards production in the not-too-distant future. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Mr. Clevenger. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network solid and gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned showindo gold project in peru the company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource a preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.sullivan.com to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, I'm here with Jeffrey Clevenger. He's the president, uh, chairman, president, and CEO of Gold and Minerals. 
And Chen Lin is with me as well. Chen, uh, this has been one of Chen's top picks, Golden Minerals, for some time, so I thought it would be appropriate to have Chen on. He might have a question for Mr. Clevenger as well. Let me just uh, say that Golden Minerals trades on the American Stock Exchange under the symbol AUMN and on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol AUM. It has been trading at around, last I looked, I didn't look today, but recently at around $7.60 or so, but with only 9.3 million shares outstanding. So this gives this company a fairly small market cap, in my view, for where this company has uh, is at this present time with its advanced stage projects, uh, or at least one of them that we'll be talking to Mr. Clevenger about uh, in just a minute. So uh, before... Uh, begin. Uh, let me just give you a little background on, on Jeffrey Clevenger. He has uh, a very distinguished career with over 35 years of mining experience with companies like Apex, Silver Mines, Cypress, Amex, Minerals, uh, and Phelps Dodge. From 2004 through 2009, he served as Director, President, and Chief uh, Executive Officer of Apex Silver Mines, where he led the construction of the $1 billion San Cristobal, San Cristobal mine in Bolivia. Uh, from 1992 to 1999, uh, while reporting to the chairman of the CEO of Cyprus, Amax, uh, with active participation at the board level, Mr. Clevenger was chief operating officer and president of a large integrated copper producer, one billion pounds per annum, and the world's largest Mali producer. He was one of a five-member policy committee for the parent Cyprus Amax Minerals Company and responsible for 4,500 employees. Uh, with producing assets in the U.S., Europe, Chile, Peru. Uh, during his tenure at Cyprus, uh, uh, copper production increased by more than 65%, while the costs were lowered by nearly 30%. So I could go on and on about Mr. Clevenger, but I think it's clear that he has a, a very successful career, has had a very successful career in the mining business, and he is no doubt looking to uh, add one more uh, star to his crown, so to speak, uh, uh, with Golden Minerals. So welcome, Jeffrey, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's really great to have you um, to explore the potential of Golden Minerals. I want to really would like to ask you, you have uh, primarily, uh, well, you do have one major, uh, one, I would say, flagship property, as I understand, the Alquivar in Argentina. Could you tell our, and it's at, at the feasibility stage now, could you tell our listeners just a little bit about what the prospects are for that property? Sure, Jay, I'd be happy to. First of all, we're located in Salta province, and Argentina is a very provincial country. Uh, the province is having large say over what goes on with mining. In fact, they even own the mineral resource. Salta is very pro-mining. Uh, and uh, we're, de we're developing this property called El Quebar, which is a silver project. We've had intersections as high as and over 10 kilograms per ton. But on average, we've now developed a resource base of an indicated and inferred resource of about 60 million ounces, and there's plenty of room for that to grow. We're completely open to the west on the two-and-a-half-kilometer strike length of the zone we've been drilling. We're open both up and down dip, and what that means is we've drilled holes through the mineralized zone, and there's potential above those uh, zonal intercepts, uh, both above and below, where we have drilled as well as to the west and to the east. And this particular uh, property or zone that we're drilling, the Yachte Trend, is one of only, is one of 12 other uh, properties or areas that we've identified in what we consider to be a district p potential play. We own about 60,000, or the rights to 60,000 hectares, which 
you know, in U.S. terms, is about 150,000 acres. And we're proceeding with a feasibility study, and that includes additional drilling. We've come up with several um, increases in the resource estimate. The most recent one took it from about 44 million ounces to 60 million ounces. We'll be updating that at the end of the year. We've got a couple of drills running now. Um, it's high grade. Uh, it's greater than, it's about 330 grams per ton, or in layman's terms, I suppose you'd call that 10 or 11 ounces per ton. So, it, you know, if you say, just to make the math easy, $20 an ounce, that's 200 plus dollar rock. And the feasibility study is, is uh, continuing on several fronts. We're doing preliminary engineering, and probably most importantly, we are well about two-thirds of the way down to the ore zone with a uh, production quality decline. When I say production quality, I mean that it's of a size such that it will serve as the mine entry point and exit point as we go forward. It's not just simply to access the ore itself, but it's also built so that we don't have to reinvent those costs going forward and it will serve as a production quality decline. Once we get down there, we will do uh, we will do some metallurgical testing to firm up those results that we have from the drill core. We will uh, uh, drill additional holes to firm up our mineral resource modeling techniques, which of course we believe to be accurate, but which of course need to be proven. And we'll also uh, determine what the best underground mining method is. We think right now that it'll probably be some kind of cut and fill or possibly shrinkage stoke, but we'll know that better when we access the ore. Now, when I say the deposit on a resource basis so far averages about 330 grams per ton, we've actually developed mine plans to where we believe that we can maintain something on the order of 500 grams per ton mm. for several years. So it's, uh, it's, it's extremely high grade. That's our flagship property. And, of course, we have, we have other properties that we're pretty excited about in Mexico where we have drills turning as we speak. Uh, two of those are in the northern state of Zacatecas. One is right between Goldcore's Penasquito Mine and Camino Rojo, which Goldcore purchased here about three or four months ago for $300 million. We exhibit some similar characteristics on the surface, and of course now we're poking holes in it so that we can determine uh, if indeed we have what we hope we have there. We have another property off to the east of La Pinta in the state of Zacatecas that's called Matawapil. It's a joint venture with our partner, Almaden Minerals, whereby we are earning a 60% interest, and we are now on about our sixth hole there. Um, the assay turnaround is, is a little slow. We don't have any assays back yet, but the geologists report favorable indications in the core that they're looking at. But really too early to put any quantitative analysis to that, other than to say if, any, if, the, re, if the listeners would care to go to our website, goldenminerals.com, mm -hmm. they can see our most recent presentation. And the Matawal Peel project is a project that, at least on the surface, we have, t we have taken uh, samples of gold up to about 20 grams per ton. Mm. And these, these are not just picking a rock that looks good. These are actually 60-kilogram samples that have been screened down and fire assayed. So it's... We believe it's representative surface. Well, Jeffrey, you, you have so many great properties. Uh, I know that uh, the Alcavar is the most advanced one. 
Uh, and I'd like to, you know, if we had time, we could we could spend more time on a lot of those uh, exploration properties. And I do want to I do want to spend a little bit more time on that. But I'd like to back up just a moment on something you said uh, about the 500 gram per ton as opposed to 330 grams per ton. Now, if you talk 330 grams per ton, as you say, that's about $200 rock. If you are able to maintain, I guess you're talking about a mill feed of 500 grams per ton. You're thinking is that's possible, or at least that's your goal. Then we're looking at something like what 300, 300 uh, plus dollar rock, and which leads me then to the que- another question. Basically, is what do you think in a range? Now I realize you're doing the feasibility study now, and when you finish that feasibility study, you'll have you more definitively. But can you give us some sort of a range of what would be a, a logical operating cost, cash operating cost? Because if the listener is is hearing two hundred dollar rock then what's the cost uh, per ounce? No, I think that's a fair question, Jay. And, and as you properly noted, um, that will all come out with the feasibility study. But if you look at the mining, uh, the underground mine size that we have, and, and if you would look at a comparable mill side, we're, size, we're looking in the range of somewhere between 800 and 1,200 tons per day. And if you added those together and you said, okay, what are, what are other companies, what are their operating, cash operating costs typically range in, it's probably safe to say it's in the neighborhood of $100 a ton. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so that if you if you got three hundred and thirty dollar rock, then you the you know you can do the arithmetic and see where it's at. If you've got five hundred grams, uh, I'm sorry, if you have two hundred dollar rock, you can figure out what the co- what the um, gross profit are is would be. But if you're looking uh, seriously at five hundred grams per ton, then obviously it would be a lot better than that. Yeah, and you know I think another interesting analogy to draw between gold and minerals is we have a. Our largest shareholder is the Sentient Group out of Australia, and they're a very successful investor in natural resources. They have technical people. They do a strong due diligence of a company before they participate. They are our largest shareholder with about 19.8%. They are the largest shareholder of Andean Resources, which just uh, came to an agreement with Goldcore to sell to Goldcore for about $3.5 billion, and they have about... uh, their resource is about three million ounces, so that's that's about a thousand dollars an ounce, if you will. And that's uh, if you said, okay, what would that be in terms of silver equivalent basis? It's in the neighborhood of fifteen dollars per ounce. Mm-hmm. Well, our enterprise value, if you take our market capitalization, deduct our cash, we have an enterprise value of something around thirty million dollars. That's fifty cents an ounce. I think mm-hmm. that's a, a compelling will will be a compe- compelling driver of of value for us as we go forward. Well, so what you're telling us, in another, in other words, is that you're very undervalued at this stage in in your view. That's that's certainly our belief. Yes. Chen, uh, would you have a question? Yes. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, one one thing is, you know, the company story is fantastic, and you have been buying stock with your own money, which shareholders appreciate. But so far, the stock has very little movement this year. And I've been talking to quite a few shareholders, and they believe you hasn't been uh, speaking out enough. So basically, just let the story out, let the people see what uh, valuable portfolio you have. So what's your plan of uh, more promote, promoting your company a little bit more? Jen, I think, and thank you for addressing that. Um, we do believe we're undervalued, and we have a, a systematic program developed for the rest of the year to get the word out 
we're going to be visiting uh, potential shareholders, existing shareholders from coast to coast. We're registered for a number of the conferences that probably many of the listeners attend, the Hard Assets Conference. There's a Rodman show coming up soon, and, and others. The Denver Gold Show will be available should anybody wish to talk to us. And really what we, what we need now is we need a news flow, and, and we're optimistic that the news flow out of Mexico will be positive. We can't assure that. We have to get the drill results and the assays, but uh, you know, within the next month or so, we should have uh, something to report there, and I'm optimistic that it'll be favorable. But having said that, you know, we think that we're extremely undervalued just based on the LKVAR work that we've done so far. That's um, Jeffrey. We wish I wish we had more time. We get into some more of those exploration properties you started to talk about, but I think investors uh, that are interested can certainly follow your progress by going to your website. If you just tell them again what it is, yeah, it's www goldenminerals.com. Okay, and before we let you go, let me just ask you this, because I like to ask everybody this question. This is a, a very risky business. We're in a bull market right now. I think it's a bull market of a lifetime for gold and silver mining shares, but what would you tell investors is the biggest risk they might face if they buy your shares right now? Now, you, having said that they're extremely undervalued, we believe that. I believe that personally as well, but there's always risk. What do you think the biggest risk would be? Well, Jay, I think the big, probably the biggest risk for us is, I mean, in order to be able to build LKVAR, obviously at some point we will need additional funding to do that. So I suppose that could be the biggest risk. And, and quite frankly, we're pretty cautious and, and sensitive to shareholders that have invested in us. So we don't want to go out and do a great big dilutive fundraising. And so I think that that's the risk, the timing and the availability of capital and at what cost it may come in the future to be able to accomplish what we need to do. Well, that's very good. And, of course, uh, getting your shares up to a, to a fair value would uh, certainly help and reduce the dilution down the road. And I know you're aware of that. I mean, you're much more brilliant guy than I am, so I don't need to tell you that. But anyway, we're, I think it's always important to note that management, when they have some skin in the game, it's, it's very important. And that, that is, as uh, Chen was saying a minute ago, he, uh, investors appreciate that. So we want to thank you for that and for your hard work and for your accomplishments in the past, which we expect you're going to project onto the future for those of us who own your shares, as I must tell my listeners, I do. So thank you, Jeffrey, for being with us. Folks, don't go away. We're going to come right up with our our guest for the week, Dmitry Orloff, is going to be with us. Dmitry will talk about the patterns he sees in the United States following those of the Soviet Union during its demise. Don't go away. Very important information coming to you from Dmitry Orloff. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Our special guest this week is Dmitry Orloff, who was with us, oh, a number of months ago, uh, to talk about his book called Reinventing Collapse. And I would highly recommend you read this book, not because it's going to make you smile and happy, but, not, but because I think that he's on to something in terms of the, the patterns, uh, the financial markets that we're seeing, the problems we're seeing in America uh, in, in the financial markets, and as he's pointed out in the past, the financial markets are the first to go, and then other things start to decay and follow thereafter. So it, it is a matter of reading, uh, not for pleasure, but for preparedness. And so um, i just give you a little background before, uh, before we start talking to Dimitri. He was born and grew up in Leningrad. Uh, but has lived in the United States since the mid-70s. He was an eyewitness to the Soviet collapse over several extended visits to his Russian homeland between the late 80s and mid-90s. He is an engineer who has contributed to fields as diverse as high energy, physics, uh, and Internet security, as well as a leading peak oil theorist. He is the author of Reinventing Collapse, as I just said, The Soviet Example and American Prospects. Welcome, Dimitri, again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Great to be with you. It's really good to have you. Now, I believe you, you live in Boston, is that right? That's right. And um, I noticed, I think, something you read or wrote recently in one of your essays. But uh, I, the last time that you were on the show, we talked about the four stages of collapse that occurred in the Soviet Union. And for the sake of those who may not have heard you then, could you perhaps review that again for, for the benefit of our current listeners? Well, actually, that's a, an essay that I, I published over two years ago, back mm-hmm. back when financial collapse was just uh, getting started. Mm-hmm. And I called it five stages of collapse to to uh, um, to basically go along with the theme of uh, five stages of grief, the, mm-hmm. the uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, hierarchy of grief, and and so I did something similar uh, with collapse, which is uh, basically financial, commercial, political. Uh, social and cultural collapse. 
Mm-hmm. So what we're going through now is uh, uh, some uh, financial collapse. It hasn't really run its course yet, and and uh, a bit of a touch of political collapse, I think, is starting to happen. Uh, nobody knows how to get politically to get the right results anymore. There's a lot mm-hmm. of um, commerce seems to be grinding along, at least for the people who have money. Although a lot of people are running out of money, uh, a lot of people are maxed out already. Um, and um, social and cultural collapse have um, reached a fairly advanced stage, I'm sorry to say, in the United States. Most people don't know who their neighbors are. There really isn't any sense of uh, community or society uh, outside of uh, churches, um, synagogues, that sort of thing. Um, and and uh, their, their cultural collapse is really how willing people are one-on-one to take care of each other, and that's at a pretty low level in the United States as well. Now, I understand that, as you say, a similar pattern, um, so you, you see a similar pattern to what happened. Um, the, the, you know, people here, though, would argue that the Soviet Union was a command economy. Admittedly, you know, my view is that we're moving away from uh, free market capitalism to the extent it ever existed in the U.S. to begin with, but that we are moving in a much more, in a very rapid pace towards a command economy here. Would you agree with that? I don't think so. I don't think anybody's in charge of the U.S. economy. I think it's it's basically kind of a dead man walking. Mm -hmm. It's a system that is too complex, too complicated um, to to be changed. There are too many entrenched interests. Um, Nobody nobody controls. The the problem is that power is too diffuse, so nobody really controls any sizable chunk of it. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, nobody really controls anything at the local level. It's too interdependent and too centralized because... All the power is in the hands of these large uh, corporations that that have a presence throughout the country. So the end the end result is not not really even a political deadlock. It's it's just a deadlock on every level. Nothing can really be changed. No new proposals can be made because they run afoul of of some entrenched interest or other. So do you see evolving some sort of anarchistic environment where um, where there's no law and order? That is, where these various special groups without anybody in charge, it just sort of creates a chaos? Well, there there are a few trends. One is that uh, sovereignty is being eroded in a number of ways. One is that the narco-mafia is taking taking over. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's there's no reason to think that Arizona police will be able to stand up to, you know, people armed with Mm AK-47s. you know, the war on drugs has been lost and is now an invasion. So the narco cartels are basically going to be the new aristocracy in the United States in maybe a couple of decades. Wow. So that's one thing that's happening. Um, the, the other thing that's happening, and that parallels what, what happened in the Soviet Union, is that Washington can no longer bail out the states. The problem is just too large, and the states are too far along in the direction of bankruptcy. There are too many investments that have been made that are just the wrong investment. Too many stranded assets, like highways, have been mm-hmm. and and so um, when that happens, then um, the center doesn't hold politically, and and uh, some some sort of political dissolution starts to happen. Where I wouldn't be surprised if uh, in a, again in a few years California starts conducting its own foreign policy with Japan and China, mm-hmm. cutting Washington out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a perfectly reasonable thing to expect. California's finances would be very well shored up if they stopped delivering federal tax payments to Washington. 
That's very interesting you say that because we've had another guest on this show, Ellen Brown, uh, an attorney who has talked about California creating its own currency, and I know there are some states that have actually started talking about that. So what you see is a decentralization, I guess, taking place and a move towards more local government and away from centralization. Well, in a lot of ways, government is superfluous. Um, in, in a situation where you, you can get people to follow rules where rules make sense and people already have accepted behaviors to follow that, that are adaptive behaviors, then yes, you can have government. But if, if what, it, what the state is being set for is a situation where nobody knows what's going on, what would work, all the adaptations are different everywhere. And, and so, you know, governments are very good at governing things they can identify. But if it's all murky, you know, if it's, if it's all who you know and the government doesn't know who they are, then um, they, there's really no government involvement, no room for government involvement. Um, so I see a lot of... Uh, you know, activity that would be described as black or gray economy uh, becoming very mainstream and uh, the official economy dwindling to nothing in some areas. Very interesting. Uh, since you and I last spoke, the U.S. has had some economic recovery. As I recall, the last time we talked was oh, the middle of, of 2009, perhaps, or thereabouts. And, and, you know, we were just starting to bounce off a little bit. Uh, in my view, the, this recovery has been largely artificial, induced by massive stimulus and not really anything growing from the bottom up. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that, but are you still as sure that we're heading in the same direction as you were when we spoke maybe a, a year and a half ago or so? Oh, absolutely. It's unmistakable. The interesting thing is that all of the stimulus money really has had more or less negative effect. Um, it, it basically, it, it's a reasonable thing to expect that as you approach collapse, things that used to work before work in a, in a positive direction before start to work in, in a negative direction. Mm. So each additional dollar of, of debt now produces a negative effect on GDP growth. Mm -hmm. so the more the government borrows and spends, the smaller the economy becomes as a result. Mm -hmm. a very interesting result. And, and uh, of course, nobody in Washington is prepared to either accept or even admit that this is happening. Uh, they, they can't really uh, countenance the idea that the levers that they've operated for so long are no longer attached to anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so this is becoming a bigger and, pro bigger, and bigger problem for them. It's, it, it's just becoming a, a very, very big embarrassment. Right. But, but in terms of economic recovery, uh, if you actually track uh, consumer spending on durable goods, for instance, mm -hmm. um, it, it's a pre, it, it's a good it's a good thing to look at because um, it turns out to track the overall economy pretty well, mm -hmm. uh, cutting out a lot of government manipulation. Uh, but um, uh, discretionary durable goods spending has never recovered; it just went down and stayed down. Mm -hmm. And we would expect. The same thing to happen to the overall economy as well. So I don't think there's any economic growth at all. Mm -hmm. I think the economy is shrinking 1% or 2% a year. I think it will continue to do that, and eventually that will accelerate. And notwithstanding the government's numbers, which suggest that we do have a slight growth in GDP, I guess. But denial, you talk about denial uh, in a recent essay that I read uh, that you wrote. Um, a couple of weeks ago we had Boston University economics professor Lawrence Kotlikoff on this show, and he pointed out that, for all practical purposes, the United States is already bankrupt. Uh, Professor Kotlikoff noted that 
if you run a present value analysis of the obligations of the United States government, that is uh, on its uh, Social Security, Medicare, etc., that it comes out to something like $202 trillion compared to $9 trillion that the government is owning up to. Um, but in, uh, So this is a form of denial, I guess, but you talked in your recent paper uh, about denial. Could you talk perhaps a little bit about other forms of denial? Well, uh, it, it's an interesting point about bankruptcy because uh, you know the Soviet Union really dissolved when it could no longer uh, continue rolling over its debt. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is probably going to happen to the United States. And right now everybody's talking about, well, the yield on the treasuries is low, and you know it's a flight to safety. You mm-hmm. know, but at some point there will be a run on the treasuries, all the money will pile into commodities, and then we'll have about a hyperinflation. That's mm-hmm. Well, the, the so U.S. is certainly okay. dependent on, on you know, the saving countries, uh, China and Japan and others. And the Chinese have made no bones about it. They're, they're wanting to diversify out of the dollar and get into other things. They're taking their dollars and buying assets and real, real, uh, real items overseas. You know, I mean, I, they're, talking, they're buying uh, you know, mineral properties and energy uh, properties and reserves and things like that. Where, uh, your, your country, your motherland is, the, is Russia. Where do you think Russia fits in in all of this? And, and do you think that, the, that Russia is really looking to become a rival power to the United States again? I don't think Russia really cares about the United States at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the Russians had uh, an interest in the United States at some point, uh, but um, they're far more interested in uh, trading with China. Mm-hmm in having uh, cordial relationships with, with Europe and kind of dissolve the borders between European Union and Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're, they're far more interested in, in to the extent that they, uh, uh, they, they want to be like other nations. They would much rather be like France and Germany like the, than the United States. The United States is just, uh, as far as Russia is concerned, a bit of a has-been. Mm-hmm. And not really that much of a threat. Uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. has all these military bases for whatever reason nobody knows, um, but it, it doesn't really amount to much. And, and they're just an irritant as far as Russia is, is concerned, you know, arming Georgia, you know, putting these useless radar installations, that, you know, in the Czech Republic that are supposed to detect non-existent Iranian missiles, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. It's just a bunch of nonsense. And there's a bit of frustration also that, you know, on the one hand, Obama said that he wants to do a reset, he wants improved relations with Russia after the incredible stupidity of George W. But it turns out later Putin recently said that Obama isn't really in control. He's more of a hostage in the White House than anything. Mm. And so uh, there's no point in really talking to him because no matter what he says, uh, same things happen that were happening before. It's just a kind of a zombie state that continues doing the same nonsensical thing. Well, this is interesting uh, if Putin said that, because it would certainly fit with what another guest on this show, Daniel Estulin, has, has talked about, uh, author uh, and probably the premier authority on the Bilderberg Group. And, and it also jives with what you said a little earlier in terms of uh, who's in charge. No one's in charge except large corporate interests, uh, perhaps, that are really dictating and pulling the strings of the president and the in uh, the Congress, I suppose, right? I don't think they're even pulling the strings. I, I think it's more of a direct threat, threat. You know, do as we say, or you're dealing with just complete total collapse. Interesting. 
Well, you made several trips um, during the during the demise of the Soviet Union from 1989, I believe it was, through 1995. Uh, could you perhaps talk about some of those trips and what you saw, how things sort of changed as things went downhill in the Soviet Union? Well, I saw uh, I saw things change in a number of snapshots, which crystallized what was going on for me in a way that it wasn't obvious to the people who were there the entire time. Um, and certainly not to the people who visited just once or twice. I was from there, so I, I knew what I was looking at, mm-hmm. et cetera. But the first time I went there, it was still the Soviet Union, very recognizably so, and the odd thing was that nobody thought that anything would ever change. Mm. That was the refrain. This is all going to just go on like this forever. Uh, and and uh, people were talking in terms of uh, really marginal improvement, really small things. The next year after that, it was pretty much economy in free fall, shut down, empty stores. Um, nobody wanted to accept the Soviet currency for much of anything, gasoline shortages, um, and, and uh, everybody trying to grow their own food. And then on subsequent visits, I saw various stages of this sort of mafia capitalism take over where you could buy anything out of a, a locked metal booth run by some ethnic mafia. And, and there was a lot of crime, and it, the whole thing was just incredibly unsettled and dangerous. Um, then I, I caught snapshots of hyperinflation where I was running around with my pockets bulging out with these rolls of useless thousand-ruble notes. That, you know, to buy you know, a sack of potatoes, you needed a pile of money. Mm. Um, and that went on for a while. And then I saw Russia very rapidly recover, um, mostly... Mostly this happened after I, uh, I, I stopped coming to Russia uh, in mid-90s. Uh, but but I, already, I, I saw it starting to happen where Russians got very, very busy. They basically decided that you know, this, uh, this has to change and, and started, started making improvements. And, and uh, they were quite successful in doing so, so that now Russia is really an unrecognizable place. You know, sky-high real estate prices. Um, and and um, very prosperous looking, very well-dressed people, new cars on the street, uh, people taking vacations uh, in tropical places during the wintertime, all that sort of thing, trappings of the middle class hmm. for, for a large part of the population. When was the last time you were back in Russia? I was back there in 1996. 1996, yeah. And uh, but you do you have family members back there? Yes, my wife is there now. As a matter of fact. Oh, okay. So you so you were in constant contact with with things in Russia on a regular basis then. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now you in a recent paper that you've written you talked about and and let me ask you before we uh, before I forget to ask you, uh, how can people track your work? There's, you have a blog or a website, I believe. Yes, it's Club Orlov O R L O V dot blogspot dot com. And uh, it's a very popular blog. I get a lot of visitors. Club Orlov. Could you say it one more time? Cluborlov.blogspot.com. Okay, good. Um, so you were, you know, in a recent paper that you've written, you talked about the preparedness or how people were able to uh, to handle this adversity in Russia. And you're suggesting in many ways that People in the United States probably won't be as prepared if it comes to that in the United States. Could you perhaps give us some examples of why you believe that's to be the case? Well, it's actually coming into focus now that 60% of Americans are on public assistance. 
um, there's this 40% gap of Americans who aren't on public assistance. And they're going to be a problem because in Russia, the reason people could survive relatively well is because they were 100% on public assistance. They all lived in public housing. They all used public transportation. Uh, they, they, most of them were provided food by government-run stores, um, the food such as it was. Um, and and uh, the extractive industries that delivered gasoline and diesel oil and, and, and coal and, and things like that were all government-owned and continued to function. They didn't really need any sort of a market economy. Mm -hmm. So financial collapse internationally didn't mean standstill within the country itself. The life support system didn't fall apart. Where, whereas here, the government can't really, you know, do anything um, without spending money. So once that money uh, stops being effective and internationally, once Americans have to start, start earning foreign currency in order to get what they need, mm -hmm. two-thirds of the gasoline they burn, uh, the economy will come to a standstill. This is a, a very big difference. Mm -hmm. now, uh, putting 60% of the U.S. population on the dole is kind of a step in the right direction because then you can sort of uh, commandeer the parts of the economy that keep people alive and, and maybe keep things going that way in the absence of a market economy, you know, once market failure really sets in. Uh, but we're very far from that point. And, and uh, because everybody here is such a great believer in, in, you know, in, in capitalism, uh, much more so than the Russians were believers in communism, mm -hmm. uh, it's very unlikely that the, that the necessary adaptations will be made. Mm -hmm. So the decline then will come when the dollar, when, when we actually have to earn foreign currency rather than just issue our own and, and receive, you know, the Chinese, the Japanese, others uh, buying our debt. When that day, when that day, when that day ends, then I guess that's when things will fall apart and you see really hyperinflation heading our way. Well, yes, and I think that it's more or less an instantaneous effect. It's, it's sort of like you can, you can run up a, a, a big bill at a grocery store on, you know, that gives you stuff on credit, but one day you'll show up and they'll tell you that your money is no good here You're right. and ask you to, to leave. And so that will happen systemically. Uh, I don't know what will trigger it, but... What I think will happen is, is uh, at some point, all of the people holding uh, treasuries will get spooked mm -hmm. and, and start piling money into commodities instead. Mm -hmm. and that will well, be as, I, as I noted, I mean, the, the Chinese have certainly been hinting at that. I mean, I'm more than hinting. I think there's evidence now that they are buying fewer of our treasuries, and, and that is probably one of the reasons that Mr. Bernanke is doing quantitative easing, as they like to call it. I like to call it printing money. They were buying uh, the Federal Reserve buying uh, the government's uh, debt or buying, uh, talking about buying everything under the sun if need be. I mean, Bernanke even talked about buying gold mines at some time in the future if need be to pump money into the system. And the sort of belief that we can just, you know, just sort of by printing money overcome, overcome all of these economic declines. I mean, it's, it seems to my mother, who only had a sophomore in high school education, it seems preposterous, but the PhDs in economics, they're buying this story, aren't they? People are buying this story. Well, there are basically there, there are two things to say about that. One is that the Chinese aren't going to pull the whip the rug out from under the U.S. Treasury. Right. They're just not going to. They have a doctrine called the Doctrine of Small Steps. So every month, more and more international tra transactions are conducted in, in yuan. Um, through Hong Kong, mm -hmm. uh, less and less treasury paper is being bought up or you know, more and more is being sold 
as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're reversing that, but but it's it's gradual. Mm-hmm. They're not going to cause a panic. Mm-hmm. In fact, they don't want to cause a panic. Um, so the cause of of this uh, collapse in confidence will be some event. We don't mm-hmm. know what it's going to be, but there will be a trigger, and after that. Uh, it, it's it's sort of like just a house of cards collapsing. Mm-hmm. Now, what Bernanke is doing, you know, you can call it printing money, but um, really it doesn't do anything because it it doesn't actually produce any kind of spending. It doesn't mm. it doesn't increase the velocity of money. It's just basically a game with bank balance sheets where they they get uh, nominal dollars at one window and then they deposit those nominal dollars at another window window and earn interest in those same nominal dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just basically some kind of a paper game, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the economy. Mm-hmm. It only has to do with making institutions that are bankrupt look solvent. Mm-hmm. And I think the only end result of that is they have enough money to pay themselves salaries and, and, and bonuses and enough money to contribute to political campaigns. Mm-hmm. Well, you're certainly right when you say about the velocity of money. I mean, this is, this is uh, you know, as I read the, uh, the events, read about the events of the 1930s, the Great Depression in the U.S., it seems to me policy is following the same measures as it followed then, only, uh, you know, but the banks wouldn't lend. They weren't people that were credit worthy. As you say, you show up at the grocery store one day and they don't want your money anymore and they tell you to leave. The consumers are losing their credit. You said they don't have money to spend anymore. That's absolutely true. Well, I would say they don't have credit any longer. The credit lines have been cut because banks are looking and saying, these people can't pay us back, and they're losing their jobs. Uh, you know, Jobless rates are, are really, really high, notwithstanding how they try to whitewash it and say, oh, gee, you know, we created more jobs this month than we expected, so therefore the stock market rises. There's an enormous amount of denial going on in the United States yet, though, isn't there? Well, yes, and and uh, I think that it will continue up to the moment when people stop thinking that they don't have enough money and start realizing that they don't have enough of whatever this money can still buy and won't be able to for much longer. We only have a minute left. I'd like you to tell our listeners what they can do in the next, you know, if you can tell them in the next uh, 60 seconds, what can our listeners do to prepare themselves for what might be coming our way? Well, basically they have to make connections with their neighbors and and, uh, with their families and start providing for themselves and for each other in various immediate direct ways so that they can prepare themselves for life without access to consumer goods or store-bought products. And that's a tall bill, I know, but, you know, that's what we have to do. Okay, well, for some more practical advice on that, then give our listeners your website again, your your blog again, if you could just give that one more time. Club or love, O-R-L-O-V, dot blogspot, dot com. Dimitri, I want to thank you so much for coming on with us again. We could go on for a long time. Uh, realizing we had such a short period of time, I shortened the questions and the, the, uh, the depth of those questions. But I want to thank you again for sharing your insights and your experience uh, for the Americans who are listening to this. Uh, a debt of uh, gratitude to you for, for coming on and sharing your insights and helping us prepare for what I think is going to be a very difficult time ahead. So that's all the time we have uh, for now. But, folks, don't go away because we are going to have Suzanne and Lisa from All-in-One Preparedness coming your way uh, as we move forward into the future uh, for the kind of events that uh, Dimitri's talking about. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. You know, this show is about trying to understand what is really going on in the economy and the world in general. Then having properly diagnosed what's going on and understanding as best we can what's going on, we should, at least in theory, be in a better position to survive and to thrive in the environment that, is, that, uh, that we have to deal with. The global economy is arguably in the worst spot, the worst position it's been in since the 1930s, at least from the perspective of America. We talk about that all the time on this show, and from an investment point of view, I believe, I think many if not most of the guests we have on this show believe that gold is the most important investment that you can make at this point in time. But you can't eat gold and you can't drink gold and gold won't keep you warm in the winter and it won't keep you cool in the summer. So there are some obvious survival needs that we have uh, that we must think about. Uh, as Daniel Estulin has pointed out in his um, uh, in his excellent book, uh, when he talked about the United States following the path of the Soviet Union, Daniel pointed out that uh, about the second or third phase of the demise in the Soviet Union, first you had the financial problems, and then uh, and then you started having items disappear from the sh- from the shelves of stores. Uh, much the same happened, uh, according to Adrian Salbucci, also a guest on the show, in Argentina. Um, items weren't available for purchase. So even if you have your gold and you can't find any water or anything to purchase, uh, the gold isn't going to do you too much good. So I'm really happy to have with me again today Suzanne from All-in-One Preparedness. Uh, And Suzanne, she was with me, as I say, once before, and she talked about All-in-One Preparedness. 
And Suzanne has brought a friend with her today. Her name is Lisa Bedford. Welcome to both of you, Lisa and Suzanne. Thank you, you, Jay. Um, Now we want to talk about, I would like to just, for those that haven't uh, heard about all-in-one preparedness before, uh, Suzanne, I'd like to I'd like you to talk about that again. Uh, we've had, our numbers have grown very dramatically since you've gone on before, so I'm sure there's lots of people that have not yet heard the story of All-in-One Preparedness. Could you tell our listeners how you came about to set up All-in-One Preparedness? Well, tell us, first of all, what it is, and then just tell us a little bit of background and how you came to, uh, to, to, to set up, uh, establish the business uh, that you have uh, called All-in-One Preparedness. Okay, I sure will. And by the way, Jay, congratulations. I've started listening to your very first show and I just I'm I'm thrilled for your success, but I'm I'm moreover I'm thrilled for all the listeners that get a chance to to learn from your wide variety of guests. So, I'm I'm honored to be among them. Well, thank you. Um so, what All-in-One Preparedness is, it's a it's a very small company. It's family-owned and it's dedicated to providing a very affordable means for people to keep some food and water supplies in their homes for times of uncertainty. And people, mm-hmm. de- people define that to varying degrees, and um, we're happy to accommodate people at any, at any level, from, from people who are campers and RVers to people who are thinking more long-term and want a larger supply. So it's been really a great, fun time for me to get to know so many people, and I've certainly learned from them, and I hope they learn a little bit from me. But... Um, we really uh, pride ourselves on being a small organization that's just really grounded in super high quality and affordability. Okay. Uh, and, Lisa, I understand that you've tried uh, all-in-one preparedness products in the past. Would you care to talk a little bit about your experience with, with those products? Yeah. Um, I write about food storage. It's one of the topics I write about on my blog, thesurvivalmom.com. And when I talk about food storage, a lot of people immediately head to the grocery store and they start loading up on cans of soup and ravioli and dinty more stew and all of that is fine and good. But eventually they start looking at expiration dates and realizing they need something that has a longer shelf life. Mm-hmm. And so food such as uh, Suzanne sells at All-in-One really does fill the bill. And so um, I've tried just a variety of them. And I suggest just buying smaller cans and trying lots of different products. So you're trying dehydrated onions and you're trying maybe dehydrated peanut butter. And you start getting used to the flavors and the moms out there that may be listening, they incorporate some of these into their cooking because the quality is there. It's just a matter of getting your family tuned into maybe a slightly different taste, a slightly different texture, and the more you incorporate those types of food, I think the more comfortable you feel about stocking up on them because no one wants to be, you know, hunkered down in a bunker somewhere and you have, you know, you open up cans and cases of food you've never even tried before. Mm. So you don't know if there's a food allergy. You don't know if someone in your family will just, you know, um, stick their heels in and say, no, I'm not going to touch that. And so now is the time to start sampling, incorporating it into your regular meals and uh, recipes. And the products that I have tried through Suzanne's company, I've been very pleased with them. Mm-hmm. I can I can tell our listeners that uh, Mrs. Taylor and I tried the beef stroganoff and the mashed potatoes, and they were fantastic. I, I, they were they were as good as what you would expect. Uh, 
uh, to have cooked at home. And the fact that you can uh, you can keep these products in storage for how long, Suzanne? We have our products time tested, and we're real conservative with this number. But 27 years is the the current uh, conservative number that we use. 27 years. Now you could keep it. Uh, you could keep those products in in some garage, or could you keep them in? You know, is temperature a consideration, or do you need to uh, keep it? Is that, is that 27 year period dependent on ideal circumstances, or yes, what? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. In a in a climate controlled arena, 27 years. People are forced to sometimes store in attics, garages, um, back rooms. Uh, garages that they don't use, those types of things. And um, we say even in those circumstances, you're probably cutting the shelf life in half, but we don't see it as much more severe than that unless the temperature swings are absolutely considerable. Well, considerable temperature swings. Certainly you, both of you have lived in Phoenix where it gets to be 120 degrees. My guess is 140 in the garage. Would that pretty well cook this stuff? Uh, <laughs> that would definitely take it off the 27-year mark. Yeah, I mean, that's, okay. that's an extreme that we would definitely say would compromise the, the long-term quality, but certainly wouldn't destroy the product overnight or anything like so that. So you're still looking at 10 years, 10-plus 10 years or so in product longevity or product uh, survivability there? Yes, very conservatively, mm. yes. Okay, and um, and Lisa, you mentioned um, you know canned goods, and when I think about canned, you know, people going off and buying canned things, I'm sort of conscious in my old age about nutrition, and I look at what they say about canned items. Many times, extremely high in sodium and all kinds of other things, um, and I think there's leaching that can go on with cans and things like that too. But um, you you mentioned the nutrition aspect. Could you either of you talk a little bit more about that? Well, when they're, um, first of all, there are five enemies of food storage. Mm-hmm. One of them is temperature. And depending on where you live, that may be the biggest factor. Because mm-hmm. for every 10 degrees above 70 degrees that food is stored, it really does cut years off the life of that, can- uh, that stored food. Uh-huh. The second enemy is humidity. The third is light. The fourth is oxygen. And the fifth is pests or rodents. And mm-hmm. so the more you can protect your food from those five enemies, the longer the shelf life will last. Mm-hmm. Now, when food starts to break down, it could be, um, you know, a few days or a few weeks after the expiration date on a box of cereal or a can of soup. Um, but at that point, food begins to lose its nutrition, its texture, its flavor, its shape. So maybe if you ever eaten a food and it was like, you know, maybe uh, an old box of cereal and the Cheerios just kind of crumbled, that's yeah. a sign that that food really had gone way past its, uh, you know, its date that mm-hmm. food was still, you know, viable. So as far as nutrition goes, one factor is just protecting that food from those five enemies. Mm-hmm. And another is taking a look at what your family currently eats and maybe even predict future nutritional needs. So a family with young children, they may begin storing food now based on the ages and the development of their children, but maybe in just another seven or eight years, they may be looking at having, you know, uh, teenagers in a family. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps there's a pregnancy down the road. And so when you are uh, storing food, it's a good idea to take a look at what you're eating now. But in addition, see if you can project. Some families, for example, may... Um, 
they may think to themselves, well, you know, if times got really hard, I know that my daughter and her two kids are moving in. And so we can plan for today, but it's also a really good idea to take into consideration uh, nutritional needs and even, you know, amounts of food that may be necessary and required, you know, in future circumstances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Suzanne, uh, all in one, how does it... And I'm assuming now that when we talk about 27 years or 10, 20 years of life, uh, are, are you telling me then that the nutritional value is maintained during that time frame? Yes. The nutrition is, the appearance, the taste, the texture, all the things that Lisa talked about. Um, we have a, a really unique canning process, and there certainly are lots of dehydrators and freeze dryers out there these days, but uh, we really pride ourselves on the canning process. And frankly, any, anything inside a can is worthless unless the canning process is absolutely meticulous. And we use two lines of U.S. steel, I mean, pardon me, two layers of U.S. steel, and they are lined with the inner lining with enamel, and then they are um, nitrogen-packed, and so that removes all the oxygen that Lisa talked about. Mm -hmm. And we are, again, a very small organization, so if you send through an order, we literally would walk through the Jay Taylor order can by can or the Lisa Bedford order can by can. Mm -hmm. It's not mass production. It's not um, sending things through in the... 200s at a at a time. It's really it's deliberate. It's intentional, and it's it's really a it's it's an ideal for a perfectionist, <laughs> which is kind of what we are. And uh, the factory floor is so clean. It's um, you really just take great pride in the product. Yeah. Well, that's uh, how. Uh, so, Suzanne, how can people order this product? There's is you have a website, I guess, and that's how people would order it, or can they get on the phone? Either or. The website is allinonepreparedness.com, and it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a kind of a no-frills website, just like the company is. And uh, otherwise, you can call 602-595-1401, and I'm happy to answer any questions and um, just help people walk through it. There's a lot of questions when you start this process, and it can get to be overwhelming. Lisa and I have talked about that many times, and, and you and I too, Jay. I mean, you start mm-hmm. taking this on, and it, it does get to be a little overwhelming. Ultimately, sometimes, at least I got to that point, I just kind of wanted somebody to tell me what to do or what made the most sense. And so we're certainly here to help anybody circumnavigate it. We're low pressure, and um, if it's just to call and have a conversation, that's fine. There's one other thing I'd like to ask you about, Suzanne. What about the cost? What about the cost of these products? Um, It's my understanding in talking to you before, uh, maybe several weeks ago, that, in fact, the costs are competitive with what you would pay for, let's say, a beef stroganoff in the grocery store or mashed potatoes or something. Yeah, and and Lisa probably has a good idea of this, too, but I'm selling more and more to people just for groceries. Even when you open a can, again, under ideal circumstances, they're good for a year. Mm -hmm. So there's literally no waste. Uh, We deliver right to people's doors, and um, I think it's it's very, very competitive. And I don't know if, Lisa, if you've ever taken a pencil to it, but she's really sharp with this kind of stuff, so maybe Mm -hmm. you could add a little comment to that, Lisa. Yeah. Well, whenever I look at dehydrated foods, um, 
I look at the quantity in the can, and sometimes I dehydrate my own food. You know, it's a very easy process, but I just ask myself how many, for example, carrots would I have to peel and slice and dehydrate to fill this number 10 can mm. I can buy just for a few dollars. Uh-huh. And when you look at it in terms of just the labor expended and the cost for the produce in this case, um, there really is just no question that it actually is a very good buy. And the fact that it has a long shelf life even adds to its value. Mm-hmm. And you're looking, you're talking about uh, storage space too, uh, minimum storage space, I guess. I just had, hadn't really thought of that too much, but when you take the water out of things, you're, you can, I mean, uh, a container will you know, go a long ways, right? A container of whatever it is. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we kind of use the um, the frame of reference for people to store food for two people for one year is the size of your kitchen refrigerator. And I don't know about all of your listeners, but I can speak for myself. I'm I'm always short on space inside my my house or wherever I'm living. And so um, sometimes to come up with that space is a big deal, but people don't realize how little space this require is required for this. Mm-hmm. Let's talk just a minute about water because you need water. Um, I mean, you need water every bit as much as you need food. In fact, you'll uh, even more important in the short run, right? So what about water, Suzanne? I think you also provide some water products or water storage uh, equipment perhaps. Yes, both things, water water containers and water filters. And I encourage people that if they are going to store water, just please make sure it's a food-grade container. A lot of the water bottles and things that are sold in the stores are for one-time use only and not intended for refills. That's where the, the BPA comes in. Mm-hmm. So you start to, uh, what, chemicals leach out into the water after over a period of time? Yes, yes, that's, that's what is claimed. And uh, Okay, all right. Well, that's, I think, very interesting and I think very essential. Um, you know, obviously food and, and preparedness items, uh, survival items. Uh, and you don't have to really be looking at, you know, something as catastrophic as, um, you know, nuclear war or, or you know, massive breakdowns as they had in, uh, more recently in Greece and Argentina and Russia and places where there's been civil disorder. But basically, uh, you know, I live in Queens here, and we had a summer where um, the, the electricity was off in uh, northern, north, northwestern Queens for a couple of weeks in the middle of the summer. And, you know, people's food went bad. The grocery stores lost all their food. Um, it, was a, it was a disaster. So those people that were prepared obviously were in much better shape. So it's, it always makes sense. And I think from my point of view, what really, what really seems to make sense here is the economics of it as well, so that if you can buy a survival item without going broke in the process and, you know, in fact, maybe even even live, uh, eat more efficiently than you do normally. I think that's, that's a big selling point. I might also mention that there just happens to be um, a, uh, there just happens to be uh, a chief of staff of a congressman, a U.S. congressman, who has, uh, I know, uh, taken down a full order of uh, all-in-one preparedness, and, um, and I think it, it just makes a lot of sense to consider that. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit more to Lisa about what she's doing, and, and Lisa, could you just explain, I didn't quite catch your blog address again. What is that? Sure. Um, the name of it is thesurvivalmom.com. Uh-huh, thesurvivalmom.com. Survivalmom.com. And, you know, it was my answer to just being overwhelmed by the information out there on the Internet that's geared toward, primarily toward men. 
Mm -hmm. You can just tell by the look of the website or the look of the blog, whether it has, you know, um, you know, close-up shots of, you know, assault rifles and flames and everything. And the content, the information can be excellent. But from a mom's point of view, you know, I, the way I look at it is that, you know, in the middle of a disaster, if I'm standing, you know, in the rubble that was once my home, my kids are going to look up at me and they're going to want to know that everything is okay. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, what can I do now? What kind of things can I put into place now where I'll be able to tell my children it's okay? You know, we've set aside, you know, some extra food. We have some extra cash, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so those are the things that I write about on my blog. And I actually have a book that, um, in fact, even to today my agent is putting together our final proposal for publishers that he's going to be contacting in New York. And I hope to have that uh, available to moms and dads. About 25% of my readers and subscribers to my newsletter are men. Mm-hmm. But um, that really was the driving force, was wanting to have something out there that was reassuring to mom and yet gave them just really hard, practical, down-to-earth ideas of what to do. Because a lot of times when you become filled with fear, the first thing that goes is your, uh, your ability to kind of think logically. Yeah. And so I write very short, you know, blog articles. And sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, two or three hundred words. But there's a lot of information there. I've been at it now for uh, a little over a year. Mm-hmm. And what is the, uh, do you have a title for your book yet? I do. It's called The Survival Mom's Guide to Family Preparedness. Uh-huh. And along with that, I also have developed, and I've written my own curriculum for classes. And mm. so I teach classes on the topic of, or the topics of preparedness, food storage, food dehydration, putting together meals using Hmm. dehydrated foods. Sometimes I use Suzanne's products. Mm -hmm. And that's just one other way of just using my background in education to take this content and information and put it out in a format that is very user-friendly, non-intimidating, and yet someone can walk away from a class or my website and feel like, okay, you know, I can take this next step. Do you have any idea, Lisa, how soon your book will be uh, on the market? Well, I'll tell you, I have written about 25% of it, mm-hmm. and so once we have a publisher in place, my goal is to have the remaining 11 or 12 chapters finished by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. And okay. I homeschool, so I have to juggle that as well, but I really would like to have it out by next fall. Mm-hmm. Well, when you have that ready, perhaps we can have you on the show and you can, you can talk about it in, in more depth, uh, the Thanks. content of your book. And I think it would make a lot of sense for people to go, uh, how often do you write on your blog? Is there any special uh, time or just whenever? Oh, no, no. Um, I try to post once a day, and a lot of times I'll have things up at least twice a day. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So there's plenty of things there for people to, to, uh, to read, a lot of different topics, I guess, on, on this whole. There, there are hundreds of posts. <laughs> lots do you, of information. And do you get a lot of uh, interaction then with your readers today? I do. Right Every back. day I get, you know, uh-huh. 20, 30, 40 comments. Wow, good. And I run contests and I do product reviews. I've highlighted a number of Suzanne's products on my blog. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, I thank you both. I, I don't know if there's uh, one more thing either of you would like to add before, uh, before we say goodbye, but is there anything else that you might want to conclude with? Any other thoughts, closing thoughts? Can I say one thing, Jay? Sure. I would like to say that when people think of planning for the future, it's very interesting because there's a continuum. 
And at one end, you have people who are planning for the end of the world as we know it, the zombies, the one-second-after scenarios. Mm -hmm. At the other end, you have people who just want to be ready for the next winter storm, and then you have everybody in between. (laughs) I would like to suggest that families and individuals plan for the most likely disaster, and that is a dramatic decrease of their income. Mm -hmm. That is the most likely disaster that can happen regardless of where you live, uh, your present income, your present circumstances. It really is in this economy. If families can take these steps, they'll be ready for the next winter storm. They'll be Mm. ready for a complete collapse of civilization. But Mm. more likely than that really is a long-term unemployment, for example, yeah. or having to replace, you know, full-time, uh, you know, career with just, you know, a part-time job, you know, at a convenience store. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that is the main, uh, if the family or person was going to prepare for anything, that's what they need to prepare for. That makes a whole lot of sense. In fact, uh, not only is it likely, Lisa, it is what's happening right now. Incomes yes. are in decline. Real incomes in America, at least, are in very, very substantial decline, and yes. the mainstream is sugarcoating things, making, trying to make it look as if we're, times are normal, but they're not normal. People are having a harder and harder time making, average people are having a harder and harder time making ends meet. The people on CNBC, perhaps, that we see there all the time are, are having a pretty good time of it yet, but generally speaking, average people are having a great time, so I, having a very difficult time. So I think you've just made a very, a very, very valid point for our listeners. Uh, you know, we're we talk about gold a lot, about financial preparedness. Uh, that's part of it. It's a big part of it. But what you make, you make a very good point. Uh, you know, learn how to live within your means, of course, to start with. Get out of debt and start preparing for these life-sustaining uh, products and, and things that you need around you. Uh, you can't go wrong that way. And, and again, I would say, uh, from what I understand about all-in-one preparedness, it's very difficult to see how you could go wrong, even if things remain good if you buy those products, yeah. because they're healthy and they have longevity and they're economic. Um, Suzanne, any closing thoughts? No, I, I can't top that, Lisa. That was very well said, and I think that's kind of where we're all at. You can you can go at preparedness a number of different ways, and um, I think we're all just trying to maintain a, a state of normalcy with with respect to to income and day-to-day life. So thank you. Thank you both for this opportunity. And Well, we'll thank you, Suzanne. Thank, thank you also, Lisa. Again, it's the survivalmom.com. And Suzanne, it's um, – what is your website? It's allinonepreparedness.com. All Spell that all out, allinonepreparedness.com. Well, thank you both. Uh, for this, uh, for the excellent insights and for the good ideas about uh, preparing for the future, uh, whether it's as bleak as some of us think it might be or not, we want to be prepared for, for whatever comes our way. So thanks a lot. Folks, uh, don't go away. We're going to be right back with some closing thoughts and the wrap-up for today's show with Chen Lin. Don't go away. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try too hard it's just a love 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, we just heard some excellent ways to protect yourself in times of stress, whether from natural calamities or civil unrest. We hope and pray that none of these kinds of things that Suzanne and Lisa have talked about will come true. We hope that you don't, will not have needed to prepare for those kinds of unfortunate circumstances. But as Dmitry Orloff also told us earlier in the show, if people take their heads out of the sand and start looking around at what's really going on, there are reasons to believe the probability of some kinds of breakdown in commerce or civility that happened in the Soviet Union could, in fact, happen in America. We hope and pray that isn't the case, but we want to be prepared, whether for natural calamities or for man-made versions of trouble. Dimitri pointed out that one of the uh, lessons people learned in the Soviet Union was that you can't trust money when the system breaks down. In that country, vodka became a kind of currency, but as Dimitri points out, when things really break down in the financial system, tangibles do retain their value, their intrinsic value, which is, of course, why people go to gold in times of stress. Unfortunately, to an extent at least, things are already breaking down in the Western world. We can see that with the price of gold rising by approximately $1,000 from where it was at the beginning in in the early 2000s. In 2002, it bottomed out at around $250 and trading at around $1,250 now. So with gold rising in price and, more importantly, with gold rising relative to most other tangible assets, profits of established mining companies are rising very significantly. One startup company that I believe should start to see rising earnings, in fact, we're starting to see some of that now, uh, is a company that's a sponsor of this show, namely Brigus Gold, and I'm very happy to have with me today Wade Dow. He's the president, CEO, and chairman of that company. Brigus Gold trades under the symbol BRD on both the American Stock Exchange and the Toronto Exchanges. There's about 140 million shares outstanding, recently trading at about $1.30 in U.S. money. Gives it a market cap of about $183 million. Welcome back, Wade, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, Jay. Thank you for having me. Well, it's really great to have you back again. Uh, we've uh, we've been talking to your company and uh, uh, over the last uh, uh, number of months, and you've uh, started uh, to produce gold. And uh, always there are difficulties uh, with new startups. You and I were talking before we went on the air a little bit about you know how difficult it is. Most companies have some trouble. Uh, but you're working out the kinks now, and things are starting to go quite well. You produced 52,000 ounces of gold in 2009. You're forecasting production of 85,000 ounces, I believe, this year, and then jumping to 110,000 ounces in 2011. Can you tell our listeners how you will achieve, uh, how you expect to achieve those goals? Absolutely. Um, the mine started in May of 2009, and uh, we've had a little more than a year of production right now. So. Typically, a startup 
gold mines such as we we started in in Canada um you know typically it, it's quite common to have problems with uh with uh, production in in the first few quarters and and our mine certainly um was hindered in terms of the production during those initial few quarters but right now we are over those problems and uh it's going much better the production is ramping up the grades are increasing and uh the number of ounces being produced month over month are increasing and most importantly as a result of those positive developments the cash flow is increasing so we will see um an increase of um um from 50 uh 50 plus thousand ounces in 2009 to 85,000 ounces in 2010 so this this year and next year our projection is for 110,000 ounces then in 2012 we will do 120,000 ounces the mine uh, is uh, consists of right now an open pit but we are in the process of developing an underground portion of the mine as well so uh, there'll be both an open pit and an under underground gold mine operating in Ontario at the Black Fox mine Okay, so that 120,000 uh, ounces by 2012, I believe, is that uh, is all coming from Ontario, right? That, that is correct. And you do have a project slated uh, to go into production sometime in the not-too-distant future in Saskatchewan. Would you care to tell our listeners a little bit about that, perhaps, and then we'll get back to the Ontario operations? That's the neat thing about Burgess Gold. We have, uh, we have a producing mine that's ramping up in Ontario, but we also have a pipe a pipeline of projects and uh, our second development project which will be our second gold mine is located in the in the province of Saskatchewan as you pointed out and uh, pending uh, a positive production decision which at this stage I see no reason why we would not move forward with a positive production decision uh, which we are scheduled to make that decision in the second quarter 2011 uh, we will then require um, just under two years to construct the mine. So the first ounces of gold will be poured in 2013. So with the production decision ha- happening next year, we'll need a couple of years to build it, and we'll be up and running um, at a rate of between 70 and 75,000 ounces of gold per year once it's producing. Very interesting. So if I, if my arithmetic is correct here, you could be producing 190,000 or so ounces of gold per year if everything goes along plan by the year two thir- uh, 2013. That's right. Uh, we will, um, two, 2013, I believe our projection is, uh, is about 180, and then, it, and then it will move up from there uh, to between one, 180 and 200,000 ounces in subsequent years. Okay. Well, that's, a, of course, we'll tell our listeners, um, you know, if everything goes well, those are the plans. That's the best we can uh, we can see at this point in time. But as you say, there's no reason to believe at this stage that the feasibility will not go forward uh, on that project. But I'd like to get back. Oh, maybe before we get back to Ontario, I just want, if you could touch briefly on a couple of your other projects. There's one I know about because I visited it down in the Dominican Republic that looks very good to me. It's uh, Everton, I believe Everton Resources is your joint venture partner. Could you talk about that one just briefly? We have a project in the Dominican Republic. Um, it, it was a 100% owned uh, a, a property uh, or project uh, by our company, but we elected to bring in a partner, and we brought in a, a strong exploration company as our partner. The company is called Everton Resources. It trades on the Venture Exchange in Canada, and uh, Everton are funding the exploration on, on, that, on that 
on that particular property. So there's a drill there's a drill program about to um, about to commence in the Dominican Republic on that property. Um, essentially, it's sitting directly adjacent to a to a very large uh, gold deposit. In fact, it's it's one of the largest gold deposits in the Americas. Uh, it's over 20 million ounces and. Uh, our property is, is directly adjacent. In fact, uh, the border of our property is just a few hundred meters away from some of the pit, pits that uh, will, will be uh, going into production from, uh, from that ore body. So Everton, uh, they have a right to earn up to a 70% interest in the property, and uh, there will be drilling occurring uh, in the coming weeks, and we expect to have uh, news flow from that, pro- from that property as a result of the drilling, uh, definitely by the end of the year. So it's a catalyst that could uh, definitely add some value to our company if, if Everton is successful. We're, we're quite excited to see the drilling start uh, in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, I might add it would add value to your company without you needed to, needing to spend much money. You'll let Everton do that, and uh, if if they take it to seventy percent, you'll still have thirty percent of of something that's pretty valuable, perhaps. So that's you also have a couple of properties in Mexico. I don't know if you care to just comment briefly on those before we, we get back to Ontario. We have two properties in Mexico, and uh, for the next twelve months, we 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 intend on spending very little on those. Although we will be doing some desk desktop work and general planning, but um, our focus will definitely be um, Ontario and uh, then Saskatchewan starting in 2011. And of course, we have the benefit of Dominican Republic, as, as we just mentioned. But our focus operationally will, will be on Canada, particularly in the short term, continuing to ramp up the production, the cash flow, and the grades at our Black Fox mine in Ontario. Okay, so for some very good reason, I might add, in my view, what's made your company so exciting is not only the the kind of numbers you're talking about now that are in view because of the work you've done, because of the feasibility work and the drilling and the exploration, but you have an awful lot of blue sky there in Ontario as well. Could you talk a little bit about the extensive exploration potential you have there, not on one property, but there's a black fox, you have the gray fox, and you have a third property that you've added there as well. Could you just maybe give our listeners a sense of the magnitude of of, uh, of upside potential there? Our company is, has consolidated three separate uh, properties into now one contiguous uh, block. So we have a we have a, a property that now extends over six and a half kilometers along a very famous structural fault zone. That hosts that's hosted gold mines for over 100 years in Ontario. So we've uh, we've acquired three contiguous properties: the Black Fox property, the Pike River property, and the Gray River property, which we now refer to as the Black Fox complex. So the entire uh, uh, structure along a six and a half kilometer trend we re- we re- refer to as the Black Fox co- complex. Now the ore body that we have. Um, is 1.3 million ounces, and uh, that's in reserve category. That ore body continues to be open for expansion along strike and at depth. So in other words, the ore body, we have not found the limits of the ore body. We have a drill uh, starting in September uh, uh, that will be testing that ore body along strike and at depth, and the objective of that, of that uh, drill campaign is to extend the ore body and add ounces to that resource and reserve number. In addition to the, to the actual Black Fox deposit, which is currently being mined, 
about four kilometers away, we found a new zone, and that zone is called the contact zone. There will be a resource estimate released on that new zone in the fourth quarter. So in November or December of 2010, we're gonna, we will issue some news on that new discovery. We will announce the number of ounces that have been found. Now, what's exciting about the new discovery is that it is open, again, a long strike and a depth, and we currently have a rig turning there right now, um, and, and the objective of that drill program is to add ounces to that new discovery. We have a third rig um, that is turning right now, and that particular particular drill rig is out testing new targets. So they're, in addition to the contact zone and the Black, Black Fox mine, which is open at depth and a long strike, we also have additional targets that this third drill rig is, is in the process of testing. So today we have a backlog of approximately 25 holes that are uh, currently being assayed, and we expect to begin releasing those drill holes through the months of September, October, and November as we receive the data from the assay labs. So we're expecting good exploration news. We're expecting to continue to add, to add ounces to our property. And, uh, you know, hopefully the, uh, the results will be positive and, and hopefully they will have a good impact on the valuation of our company. I might tell um, our listeners that uh, in this part of the world, it's not uncommon for these ore bodies to go at, at very, very considerable depths. Do you have any sense, what's the deepest hole that you've drilled with mineralization so far? That's what's interesting about, about the project is the depth uh, potential. Um, the ore body as it's modeled today, so the 1.3 million ounces are ounces that are all uh, located between surface and a, and a total depth of 400 meters. Mm -hmm. Now we have done some drilling below that level, but it's been limited. Um, the last, uh, the last uh, fan of drill holes um, that were drilled from underground intersected ore at a depth of approximately 500 meters, so we know that we have very good grades um, at 500 meters, and um, they are, in fact, increasing at that depth. So we're quite excited about the potential at depth at, at the 500-meter level. There, there were some deeper holes put in. The deepest hole is uh, approximately 840 meters, and that particular hole hit 12 grams of gold. Wow. So uh, we, know the ore, we, we know there's ore at considerable depths. Um, in terms of the district, the Timmins district, it's not uncommon uh, for these ore bodies to go for hundred, hundreds of meters and sometimes a thousand meters. So, um, you know, we certainly need to prove that. There's no guarantee that it's going to be there, but we're optimistic. And certainly the, the work that's been done to date, the limited work at depth, has uh, given some very positive indications um, that uh, give us, uh, you know, that make us enthusiastic about the potential for adding a considerable number of ounces on, on, the, on, the, on the Black Fox uh, complex property. So we're, we're enthusiastic and we're really looking forward to, uh, to um, getting our results back from the lab and also continuing on with the drill program. So in other words, uh, in my mind at least, tell me if I'm wrong, the potential to grow this company beyond 150, 170,000 ounces or whatever you're looking at uh, is, is very real, longer term. There's no guarantees, nobody knows, but with that kind of open uh, that kind of distance along strike and at depth, um, I mean, the numbers could become, you could have a very, uh, a very large multi-million ounce deposit there in Ontario alone, I would think. The potential is certainly there, absolutely there, and, and we're going about it in a very systematic way. We have, 
We have talented exploration uh, personnel. We're taking a methodical approach, a systematic approach. We are ramping it up. We have two rigs, as I mentioned, uh, working right now around the clock, 24 hours a day. A third starting uh, just in, in less than two weeks. There will be a third rig starting. And then we'll have a fourth rig, as I mentioned, uh, commencing uh, either in the month of December or January, depending on our scheduling. But there will be, within a few months, we will have ramped the program from two rigs up to four. And the reason we're doing that, the reason we're spending, you know, that magnitude of, of, of uh, you know, money, millions of dollars on exploration, is because we certainly do see the potential to add a lot of ounces to the project. Gold companies are gold companies are typically valued on different metrics. They're valued on their on their production and their cash flow, and we certainly have growing production and cash flow. But the other metric they're often valued on is the number of ounces in the ground. And if you can demonstrate within your gold company that you have the potential to add ounces and then you're successful with your drill bit, the market will generally pay attention and, and reward that type of activity. So uh, we're enthusiastic. We need to prove that the gold is, is there in, in larger quantities. But uh, we have a certain level of confidence, and we intend to, to get out there. And uh, between now and the end of the year, we should have a lot more information that we can share with the market. Well, you certainly, if you can hit on both the operating side and build ounces, that's going to be very encouraging for the market. I can't imagine your stock stays where it is if, if you're successful on both, both fronts. Now, you had an operating profit during the last quarter of $4.6 million. Uh, you had $11.4 million in operating cash flows. Your balance sheet is improving. You've reduced your debt very significantly. How long do you think it will be before you can have your, your debt paid off? Well, when this company was put together, this, this company is, is, is literally just, uh, just over two months old now. So Burgess Gold is a, is a new company. And it was, uh, it was formed as, as, a, as a result of the merger of, of two smaller companies. And I was the CEO of one of those predecessor companies. When we, um, just before the merger, the, the total debt of, of the, uh, the operation was in the range of $75 million dollars. And since that time, the debt has been reduced from $75 million uh, to $42 million today. And by the end of the year, the debt will be at $37 million. So we will have reduced the debt by 50% in a very short period of time. And uh, that's, uh, you know, we've strengthened our balance sheet, and uh, now we have a manageable level of debt. Uh, typically, gold mines are quite expensive to build, and this one was no exception. $100 million was spent building the open pit portion of the mine, and now we're spending $30 million to bring the underground portion on stream. So $130 million investment, and at the end of the year, we'll be carrying a debt level of $37 million against that asset. So mm -hmm. it, it's a manageable level of debt, and we feel that our balance sheet now is, is in good shape, and we do have... Uh, Currently, we have, we have cash flow from operations, and that we expect will increase as the quarters move forward. One of the things that's hurt your profits somewhat, and it's not uncommon be, uh, to, to start up gold mining operations, is that you had to sell some of your gold forward, uh, locked in prices below the market prices. Where do you stand with respect to your forward sales of gold at this point in time, and when do you think you might be able to get that off your books? 
there's a real balance when you start up a gold mine. Um, you, you want to maintain exposure to rising gold prices, especially in this market. It's very important. Uh, we're in a period of, uh, you know, we're in a raging bull market for gold prices. Gold has been up, uh, as, J as Jay, you well know, an expert in this area, you know that gold has been up for every year for 10 years. And uh, so we're in a situation today where gold is rising, um, when the mine went into production in 2009, um, the banks required a certain portion of the production to be hedged. At the time, gold was priced in the $870, $880 range. So there was a hedge put on for 250,000 ounces at that time um, at $876 per ounce. So our production profile right now for, for the remainder of 2010 and all of 2011 we will continue to deliver into that hedge book. Um, basically, just over half of our gold production will be sold into the spot market. So we will get the benefit of rising gold prices um, for just over half of our production. Just under half of our production will be sold at $876 per ounce. So the good news is we are, fully, we are exposed to rising gold prices. We are not fully exposed, but we are, very mu we are very well exposed. At the same time, every month that goes by, our hedge book declines. So we started in early 2009 with a 250,000-ounce hedge book. As of today, it's, it, it's in the range of 160,000 ounces. And at the end of this year, at December 31, 2010, it will be at one, approximately 143,000 ounces. So the hedge book is coming down. It will continue to drop. But in the meantime, while the hedge book is, is coming down, um, for the rest of 2010, for all of 2011, we have uh, very good exposure to, uh, to rising gold prices. I might mention that I believe your cost, your cash cost during the first quarter was about $448 an ounce. So that puts it in some perspective, even though you have to sell close to half of your production right now at $876, I believe you said, there's still a pretty good, a pretty good profit margin on those ounces as well, if you're able to at least to continue uh, producing gold at $448. Is that more or less your projections and costs, or what are your projections for, uh, going forward for uh, production costs, cash costs? At the beginning of the year, we um, we released our guidance for the for the marketplace, and we basically said that our cash cost for 2010 and 2011 will be between 500 and 550 dollars per ounce. So the, that was the guidance that we released to the for the marketplace. So we we had hoped that we would be within that range. The good news is in the second quarter is that we were we far exceeded that range. Uh, the costs actually rather than being between 500 and 550 per ounce, they were approximately 450 per ounce. But we've, we've decided to keep our guidance where it is until the end of the year. So we're taking a, a conservative approach, and uh, we will maintain our guidance in the 500 to 550 range. But that is definitely something that we will need to revisit at the end of the year. And we'll, uh, we'll get a few quarters, a couple of additional quarters of production behind this mine, and we will be in a more comfortable position to, to come out and state our guidance, which we hope to update at the end of 2010. Okay, Wade, we're just about out of time, but there's a couple more questions I want to ask you. One is, how do you think you stack up with your peers, other, other companies that are producing more or less your, your level of production? How, does, how is the market uh, pricing you relative to your peers, I guess, is, is the question I'm, I'm wanting to ask you. 
Well, we're a new company, and uh, the company is is literally, literally, I guess, been been around just for just for as I mentioned, uh, a little over two months at this stage. So um, at the present time, we have two analysts that cover us, and. Uh, and uh, we have a number of very strong institutional shareholders. Some of the largest institutional institutions in the world own our, that, that are focused on gold own our company. Uh, so our company is becoming better known, but it's still relatively unknown. Now, for that reason, our valuations are uh, not as high as many in our peer group, but that's something we're hoping to change. What you, could, what you can do, Jay, uh, at our website, there's a, there's a presentation, and we've done an analysis based on, um, on analyst consensus of our valuation, the, the valuation of Burgess Gold relative to a, a very solid cross-section of our peer group. And what you will see in that analysis, and there's four different metrics that we've, we've, we present in that presentation, what you will see is that Burgess Gold is um, uh, priced quite attractively relative to its peer group. In other words, there's, there's a valuation gap, which we believe that, uh, there's a valuation gap to fill, and we believe in the quarters ahead that we have an excellent opportunity to fill in that valuation gap and increase the value for Burgess Gold shareholders. So I'd encourage you to take a look at that. No. Well, I, you know, it's, uh, for those uh, people that have not purchased the shares yet, the fact that the market is not yet aware and you don't have that many analysts following you, it provides investors that are willing to do their homework and check you out with an opportunity to buy your shares at, at perhaps a bargain, at a bargain price. I know I certainly view it that way. You are a recommendation in my newsletter, but I must also add that there are always risks inherent in any business, the mining business being no exception. Uh, what do you think the the biggest risks are that investors who purchase your shares at these levels may face. We're doing our best right now to to uh, to de-risk certain areas of the company. In other words, the balance sheet. Uh, we're strengthening our balance sheet. The operations. We have uh, we've corrected the initial startup problems with the uh, with the mine, and so the the mine is operating very well. But there's always, uh, as you as you rightly point out, there are always risks, especially in the mining business. There's execution risk. Um, there's exploration risk when you do uh, new projects. There's the risk of of um, of uh, you know an inability to access the capital markets. It is a capital-intensive business, especially for building when you want to build a new mine. You want to have capital markets that are relatively receptive uh, when you want to go out and spend large sums to bring a new project online. And then, of course, there's always commodity risk. You have um, you have risks with the price of gold. But as I indicated, you know those risks are real. They're certainly out there. But we do our best to, best to mitigate each of those and manage them. And um, you know. We feel that uh, we have a good handle on um, on, um, on those various ri- risks, and we have a, a reasonable risk profile for the stage uh, of company that we are right now. Well, certainly the proof is in the pudding, as they say, and your uh, costs have been coming down. Your production's been going up uh, for a brand new company, as you say. You're doing seem to be on track with me, uh, as far as I can see, Wade. I really thank you again for the update. I wish we had more time. Perhaps we get you back on another quarter or so uh, down the road uh, to give us the, the, your latest update. But anyway, thanks again for being with us. Uh, folks, don't go away because I'll be right back with uh, some closing thoughts on today's show. Don't go away. I'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love and 
Turning hard times into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Trading Hard Times and the Good Times for some closing thoughts on today's show. Chen Lin is not with me. Um, prior, The two prior segments were pre-recorded, and somewhere along the line, the communications got mixed up a little bit, and the order of the uh, of the two pre-recordings were uh, were reversed. Uh, that will be corrected in the archived version of this week's show. Uh, but if you're thinking you're crazy, you're not crazy. Um, maybe if anybody's crazy, it's your uh, it's your host here who maybe didn't provide the best uh, the best instructions to an, to his engineers. But in any event, uh, I am thankful to all the guests we've had today. I do note that the equity markets today are very soft. The Dow was down 107 points. Gold was up very nicely. I do think that we are uh, heading into uh, the worst time of the year in the equity markets. Um, I believe there's a host of reasons to be very fearful about the stock markets in general. Whether or not that will translate into the gold shares remains to be seen. However, the fundamentals for the gold shares continue to improve, continue to be very strong. So I am long-term bullish and short-term not as bullish perhaps on the gold shares because I think they could get taken down with the rest of the market. That said, if you have cash on the sidelines or if you're short the market, you can do very well uh, through FAZ or through the Prudent Bear or something like that. You short the market. That's what I'm personally doing. I just would look to Robert McHugh this past weekend uh, when he prepared his executive summary for his subscribers, and he talked about, uh, I'm just going to quote here, he says, the markets are about to plunge. We will show you a host of indicators and patterns this weekend supporting this view. Listen, I'm not telling you stocks are about to plunge. The market is telling you and telling all of us that it is about to plunge. And he went on and talked about some of the, in, uh, some of the indicators that are suggesting the equity markets are about to, cl- uh, to go down very hard. Uh, he talks about... Um, a study shows the last seven, nine rallies have been stopped cold by either their 50-day or 200-day moving average, and that's where we were last Friday at the 200-day moving average. So today we see this 107-point plunge. The VIX is selling, providing a sell model. There's a host of reasons, including the Hindenburg Omen that Dr. McHugh is suggesting. This equity market is in for big, big trouble. Most likely we're going to see very strong declines in the equity market. So FAZ, Prudent Bear, should do very well. Hold on to some of your gold shares because it's hard to say uh, when the gold shares will come back or if they will even be taken down. I'm keeping cash on the sidelines because I think there's going to be a chance to buy up some gold shares at bargain basement prices. Well, I would like to go back to something Dmitry Orloff said in today's discussion. He suggests there's going to be some trigger point that will cause the world to lose confidence in the dollar. That trigger point will take the dollar down suddenly. He admitted that the Chinese don't want to see the dollar go down rapidly. They are gradually getting out of the dollar. They're gradually buying assets everywhere else. They're encouraging their own citizens to buy gold. I wish the United States would do the same. But we are intent, our policymakers are intent, on keeping people in the paper. 
That is the fraud of the century. Paper money. They are trying to keep you conned into holding dollars. Trade some of those dollars off for gold while you can still buy gold at a very inexpensive price compared to where it's going to go in my, in my view. Now, next week, I want to tell you, we have Adrian Douglas. Adrian Douglas will be with us to talk about how the policymakers have rigged the gold market. There is no doubt about it in my mind now. You can look at the evidence that Adrian will talk about next week and realize that they are losing control of the gold price and that the gold price, I think, could be that trigger that Dmitry Orlov is talking about that could really send the dollar and other markets through the floor and the gold price to exponentially high levels. Who knows how high? I don't want to see this happening, folks, but if it's happening, we want to be prepared and own the thing that holds value, and that is gold proven throughout history. I want to thank uh, all of our uh, the main people that are responsible for making this show happen, starting with my uh, senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time.